You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Rachel Keeley. Colleague is a pretty village sitting alongside the River Lee that flows through County Cork to the southern coast of Ireland. It was once the location of one of the largest gunpowder mills in Britain and Ireland, but is now effectively a suburb of Cork City and a nice little town to live in. Along with a mix of old village scenery and modern new builds, there's a large regional park where the mill used to be, which is bordered to the north by the river. Just outside the gates to the park is Inishmore Estate, where, in the year 2000, the Keeley family lived. John and Rose had married many years previously, and they had four children together, three girls and a boy. What set the family apart was their faith. The Keeleys were members of the small community of Jehovah's Witnesses in Cork. It was what had brought John and Rose together and was very important in their family life. Their daughter, Rachel, was very involved in the local congregation and was devoted to her faith. After leaving secondary school at Ballancolic Community College, she began training as a beautician, in part because she knew a career in that sector would leave plenty of time for her to do missionary work with the witnesses, which she was passionate about. In the summer of that year, at the age of 22, Rachel made a trip to Italy with her sister, where she worked for a short period as an au pair, but soon the two girls returned home together. She was known as a sweet, kind and pretty girl and had a boyfriend who was one of her group of friends in the Jehovah's Witnesses. On Thursday, the 26th of October 2000, Rachel left her family home to take her two dogs for a walk in the park. She had been studying her Bible before she left and had a Bible study meeting that evening to attend. She left home at about half four, telling her mother that she'd have her dinner when she came back. About an hour later, though, Rose heard a scratching at the door. The dogs had returned home without Rachel. It was immediately apparent that something was wrong, and Rose and her teenage daughter Elizabeth headed out to the regional park to look for Rachel along the path that they knew she usually took. But there was no sign of Rachel. At seven o'clock that evening, her parents raised the alarm. Rose made some calls to friends from their congregation. Tragically, near to 8pm, a close family friend found Rachel in some undergrowth far from the walking track in the park, lying face down and covered in briars and ferns. The emergency services were notified, but by that stage there was nothing to be done. The Gardee began a murder inquiry. The area was sealed off as Gardee from the Technical Bureau began a thorough examination of the site. Dr. John Harbison, the state pathologist, also called to the scene, where he spent three hours. Door-to-door inquiries began in the houses nearest to the park, and it was established that Rachel had last been seen in the park at a quarter past five, 
less than 30 minutes before her mother, Rose, would realize that Rachel was in trouble. A spokesperson for the Cork Congregation of the Jehovah's Witnesses said they were all numb and devastated by Rachel's sudden and violent death. She had been hugely involved in the church and had planned to take on preaching with them in the future. Flowers and wreaths were laid near to the crime scene. Her funeral was set to take place in the Witness Kingdom Hall on Hibernian Road in Cork City on Tuesday the 31st of October. It was attended by most of the 200 fellow witnesses in Cork, as well as members of the faith from all over the country. It was led by her uncle, Max Warner, and she was buried in St. Oliver's Cemetery in Mahon. On Saturday, the 28th of October, Gardy told the press that they believed it likely that people who had been in the regional park might have seen something that would provide valuable leads in the case to determine who had attacked Rachel. There were a number of youths being questioned in relation to her death who had been playing team football only 200 yards from where Rachel's body had been found. Gardy were also appealing for anyone who had been in the park that evening between 2pm and 8pm to come forward. Dr. John Harbison completed a preliminary post-mortem, concluding that Rachel had died from asphyxiation, but further examinations would be needed to determine if strangulation or smothering had been the cause. Gardy were also trying to establish if a mugging or a sexual assault had led to the killing. Though Rachel was found fully clothed, detectives believed that some of her clothing may have been interfered with, though it perhaps could have been displaced during a struggle. Men who had convictions for committing sexual assaults were questioned by the police. Though Gardy were working off the belief that no sexual assault had taken place in Rachel's case, the attack was thought to have begun as one that was sexually motivated. Gardy were also looking to speak to an elderly man and a group of three teenaged girls who were believed to have been in the park just before Rachel had died. CCTV footage from businesses near to the park were collected to be reviewed by the police too. By the 4th of November, Ralph Regal, writing in the Irish Independent, reported that Gardy were seeking DNA samples from a number of men to compare to samples that had been collected during Rachel's post-mortem. The Gardaí would give no further details of what kind of material had been collected, however, saying only that this was a significant development in their investigation. Gardaí also confirmed that door-to-door inquiries had been completed, with near to 1,000 doors knocked on and over 500 interviews having been carried out. The Gardaí also further appealed for anyone with information to come forward, particularly the elderly man who had been seen with the walking stick in the area. Six men who had been recently seen in the park voluntarily gave blood samples which were being tested in light of these developments and Gardy said that there were no specific leads that were being followed. They were keeping an open mind with regards to the investigation. RTE's Crime Lines, a TV show asking the public's help to solve crimes, broadcast a reconstruction of Rachel's last movements on the 7th of November in the hopes that it would jog the memories of potential witnesses in order to trace the person responsible for her death. Three days later, on Friday the 10th of November, news broke that someone had been arrested for questioning in relation to Rachel's death on foot of detailed blood analysis results. 
the 16-year-old male was picked up in Cork City at half seven that morning and brought to the Gurna Bahar Garda station to be questioned under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act. That night, the teen appeared before a special sitting of the Cork District Court and was charged with the murder of Rachel Keeley, as well as rape. The accused could not be named for legal reasons at that time, but it was reported that he was local, from the Balancholic area. He'd made no reply to each charge and was remanded in custody at St. Patrick's in Dublin. His parents were in the district court during the short ten-minute hearing and Ralph Regal reported that his mother was seen to cry as her son was led out of the court. The trial for Rachel's murder opened in the Central Criminal Court in Dublin on the 1st of May 2002 before Mr Justice Paul Butler and a jury of seven men and five women. Patrick J. McCarthy, senior counsel, was for the state and Blaise O'Carroll, senior counsel, was defending. Rose Keeley took to the stand and told the court how she and her youngest daughter had gone looking for Rachel at around 6pm on the 26th of October 2000. she decided to go searching for Rachel because the two dogs had returned home and she found them scratching at the door without her daughter, which was highly unusual, she said. They headed to the regional park where Rachel often walked the dogs taking a path that ran parallel to the River Lee. When Rose and her daughter Elizabeth arrived at the park, they began calling out for Rachel, yelling her name. They got no response. But Rose stated that Elizabeth had said to her that she'd heard a scream. Rose said that the idea that the scream had been Rachel was too painful for her to contemplate. While they continued to search, the two of them had seen the defendant, who was then 16 years old. Rose recalled to the court that she had said hello to the teenager and had considered asking him if he'd seen Rachel but thought that she might sound paranoid, so she didn't. Rose went on to tell the court that the young man had responded but had looked past her as he spoke and hadn't met her eye. Four young men who had seen the accused on the evening of Rachel's death were also called to give evidence. They said that the accused had acted normally that evening. They'd all met that evening at about half past six at a friend's and had watched TV. One said that the accused was, quote, just the same, watching telly in the sitting room and chatting away, end quote. After that, they'd gone to the regional park to ride motorbikes. But they left when they realised that there were Gardaí in the area. On cross-examination, they all said that the defendant didn't seem nervous or jumpy, nor was he doing anything strange or out of the ordinary. A doctor, David Murphy, had been called by the Gardaí and attended the scene at around 9pm on the night of Rachel's death. While on the stand, Dr Murphy told the court that the position that Rachel had been found in in the bushes in the park was not natural and suggested that she had been dragged to where she had been found in heavy undergrowth near an old ruin. It looked to him as if she had been neatly placed in the fetal position there and then some of the shrubbery around her had been bent to try and further conceal the body. Dr. Harbison also gave evidence not only of his post-mortem but of his inspection of the crime scene. He believed it likely that Rachel had attempted to flee from her attacker and had run to the densely overgrown area where she was effectively trapped. 
She had then been strangled, which was clear from the, quote, ample evidence of violence to her neck, end quote, which he said further implied that there was an intention to kill from Rachel's attacker. He said there was no sign of forced sexual injuries, though Rachel's clothes were disturbed. Gardie told the court that the accused agreed to give a hair and saliva sample, but had refused to give a blood sample, saying he was afraid of needles. Then Dr. Maureen Smith from the Forensic Science Laboratory took the jury through her findings. A number of fibres were found on the fleece jacket Rachel had been wearing on the day of her death. Dr. Smith said that these fibres were consistent with those found in a jumper that was taken from the accused's room the day of his arrest. Red fibres were also found on the collar and pockets of Rachel's jacket and these matched a red Arsenal football club hat that was found in the regional park with a motorbike that had been abandoned there by the accused and his friends the night of Rachel's murder. In addition, Maureen Smith told the court that semen had been recovered from the victim's body, from Rachel's undergarments and outer clothing. That semen was consistent with the DNA profile that had been created from a sample taken from the defendant. She said that there was a 1 in 650 billion chance that the DNA might be from someone else. During Dr. Smith's cross-examination, it was put to her that there were no traces of DNA discovered beneath Rachel's fingernails. The defence counsel reminded the court that there had been scratches noted on the accused's face in the days following the attack, and queried as to how it might be that there would be no DNA present if Rachel had scratched the accused during the alleged struggle. But Dr. Smith said that it was not unusual that material would not be present under the fingernails. The lack of DNA there was evidence of nothing. The day after Dr. Smith's evidence was heard, the jury was sent out of court after it was alleged that one of its members had fallen asleep during her cross-examination, which had been lengthy. After discussion in private, the foreperson assured Mr. Justice Butler that it had not been the case that one of them had fallen asleep, and so proceedings continued. On Wednesday the 12th of June, the accused's mother took to the stand in his defence. Theirs had been one of the 1,000 houses called to during door-to-door inquiries after the awful discovery of Rachel's body. She said that after the police had called by, her son was worried. Eventually, he told her it was because he had been out on the motorbike in the park and he was afraid of getting in trouble for driving it without tax and insurance. Someone had told him he could get three years for doing something like that. Her son had decided to leave the area rather than risk further interactions with the guardie where they might bring up the bike. His mother recalled to the court that she told him not to leave and that if he left the areas so soon after the knock from the guardie, they might think he had something to do with Rachel's death. But she insisted to the court that her son didn't have anything to do with Rachel's murder. The defendant's father gave the court information about his son's background, saying he had left school at 14 after the school had informed the parents that the teenager would be better off for it. The accused also gave evidence in his own defence. He told the court that he knew Rachel only to see, that he would have seen her in the area and was familiar enough with her to say hello, but that was all. He'd gone to school with one of Rachel's brothers. 
On the evening of Rachel's death, he maintained that he'd called to his girlfriend's workplace, whom he'd been with for two years, and collected her. This girlfriend had told the court that on the Saturday evening before the murder, she'd had an argument with her boyfriend in the Inishmore Park. She'd run off and he'd followed and grabbed her. She said that the then 16-year-old told her that someone was watching her from the bushes in the park, and she'd been frightened and run out of it. The defendant told the same story while on the stand, but said that there had been no argument, just that his girlfriend had been startled, and so they sat at some rocks at the entrance of the park, rather than head to the ruins, as they had intended. The defendant recalled the guardie having called to his house during the week before Rachel had been found killed. They handed him a green form which listed two charges against him, dangerous driving and driving without tax and insurance. He'd been spotted by Gardee going through a red light on his motorbike. It was a warning rather than a summons to court and the Gardee told him so, but the defendant said that he hadn't understood this and had been told by a girl he knew who worked in a solicitor's office in Cork City, that he could get up to three years for what was on that paper. Despite this, the defendant had continued to ride the bike. He said he'd driven to work on the morning of the 26th and then home again after he'd met his friends in the park at 5pm. He'd said that he'd be around to one of their houses ten minutes later. Instead, he admitted to the court that at 20 past five he went back to the park where a former babysitter of his had seen him on a path there. The defendant said he had arrived at the home of one of his friends at half six and agreed that the teens had watched TV before heading back to the park to ride their motorbikes. The accused also admitted that he had packed his bags and tried to flee two days after the murder when Gardie had called to the house during their inquiries, as he feared that he would be, quote, in the horrors, end quote, overriding the motorbike. He also admitted to lying to Gardie when they questioned him about his movements the day of Rachel's death for their questionnaire, in order, he said once again, to cover up the fact that he'd been out on his motorbike. He said when he left his house he'd been headed to Kilkenny and had planned to stay with a girl he had met three years before while away at the then holiday resort, Mosney. But after he left, the guardie caught up with him around midnight and returned him home, as he was a minor. In the days after that, he was asked for his DNA sample. He said the last time he had seen Rachel was a full month before her death. He had no recent contact with Rachel Keeley, he said, and had never had close contact with her. The DNA evidence was also challenged by the defence team. A second expert was called to give testimony. Dr. Denise Cindercombe Court said that the test tubes that contained some of the most important samples in this case had not been resealed properly and there was what she called a theoretical possibility that the samples had been contaminated. The doctor did go on to say that this was unlikely though and if it was the case, any contamination would have had to have been intentional tampering. Then the case for the defence rested and closing speeches began. In his closing speech, Mr. Blaise O'Carroll said that the prosecution had been blinded by science in this case and pointed out that it was possible for forensic evidence to be incorrect or misleading. Just look at the Birmingham Six, he said. Mr. McCarthy said that the defendant's parents had lied in the witness box to protect their son. 
Rather than their testimony, which McCarthy said was full of lies and innuendo, the jury needed to look at the forensic evidence, the fibres and the DNA. The jury were expected to retire on Friday the 12th to begin deliberations, but one juror sent a note to the judge saying she was unable to concentrate, as she was meant to have been at a wedding. The juror had informed the court of the conflict earlier in the proceedings, but on foot of the reminder it was decided that the instructions to the jury and deliberations could begin the following Monday. The judge apologised to the jury and said it was unfortunate and inevitable that this kind of thing would happen in a trial that was taking a number of weeks to conclude. On Tuesday the 18th of June, after four and a half hours of deliberation and spending one night sequestered in a local hotel, the seven men and five women of the jury returned with their verdict. Thirty minutes before, Mr Justice Butler had indicated that he would accept a majority verdict. The defendant was found guilty of Rachel Keeley's murder by a majority of ten to two. He was duly sentenced to life for her murder, and Mr Justice Butler said that the sentence for rape would be determined at a later stage in the year. An application for appeal was also dismissed. The trial had taken 26 days to reach its conclusion, but this had been drawn out over seven weeks. The following day, the young man was named in the press as 18-year-old Ian Horgan from Inishmore Square in Balancholic, County Cork. He was the eldest of four children in his family and had been working in a crate assembly factory before his arrest. He lived only around the corner from Rachel and had attended her funeral. After Rachel's murder, the rest of her family had moved from the Balancholic area. There were too many memories of Rachel in the house and there was no way they could live so close to the place that her killer had lived either. When the verdict was announced, the family was relieved. Rose Keeley spoke to the press for the first time when the court proceedings finished, saying, quote, It's just so heartbreaking to think that such a pleasant, happy girl who was never moody and was so friendly with people could have been murdered. The only comfort I was able to take on the night was that the guardie told me they'd put a tent up over her and that six of them would be watching over her, end quote. She also said, quote, I needed a measure of justice from the courts to bring closure, but the only real justice is in the hand of God, end quote. On the 22nd of November 2002, Ian Horgan was before the courts once again to be sentenced in relation to the charge of rape that he had been convicted of five months before. Mr Justice Ian Butler said that he could find no mitigating circumstances in this case, but said that the assault was not at the top end of the scale and so imposed a 10-year sentence to run concurrently with Horgan's life term for murder. Mr Justice Butler noted that Horgan's mother was having a very difficult time in the wake of her eldest's conviction in the case and said that she shouldn't have to go through the situation she found herself in. Nevertheless, leave to appeal the term was refused. In January of 2016, Ian Horgan applied for leave to appeal in the courts. His team argued that the judge's directions had been misleading and that the jury should have been told that forensic science is not infallible. They also should have been told that semen can survive on the body for days after being deposited. The Court of Criminal Appeal agreed with them and Ian Horgan's conviction was overturned and a retrial was ordered. 
This trial began in mid-February of 2006 before Mr Justice Barry White. Patrick McCarthy again acted on instructions from the state. Ian Horgan pleaded not guilty to the charges of murder and rape, but this time he admitted manslaughter. The plea, however, was not accepted by counsel for the state. In his opening statement, Mr McCarthy told the court that the defendant had filled out one of the Garda questionnaires and it had been noted that Horgan had not told the truth in response to a number of questions on it. McCarthy also said that DNA evidence would prove Horgan's guilt. Rachel's mother, Rose, was again asked to testify and went through the events of the evening of the 26th of October, describing how Rachel had left the house to walk the dogs and that they'd returned without her. Rose said she'd heard the dogs scratching on the door at about 20 to 6. After her husband got home, she and her youngest daughter had gone searching. When it was dark, she'd returned home and called her friends to help in the search. Then Rose recalled that she'd bought a number of flashlights from a local shop to help in searching the dark park. Mrs Keeley described the search which took place in the park as evening wore on and which ultimately led to the discovery of Rachel's body. Under cross-examination by Brendan Grehan, Horgan's senior counsel for this second trial, Rose admitted that she might not have mentioned hearing a scream in her initial statement to the guardee, but said that if this was the case, then it was due to the shock that they were in at the time. On the stand, Mrs Keeley said she was sure that she'd heard a scream when she and Elizabeth began their search in the park. Neve Maher, a local woman, told the court that she had been out walking her dogs on the night in question. She'd seen Ian Horgan there as she let the dogs off their leashes and the two had talked and walked together for a few minutes. Mrs Maher described the conversations as general chit-chat. After Horgan went on his way, she continued down the path but decided to head home when the weather turned. As she passed the ruin in the park, Mrs Maher said that the dogs began to act strangely as if there was someone in the old house, but she continued on. As she walked away from the ruin, she said she heard a noise. Someone was behind her, making strange sounds, but she reckoned it was kids messing and thought no more of it, carrying on making her way home. A friend of the defendant called Luke Mansfield told the court that Horgan had spoken to him a few days after Rachel's killing. He said that Horgan had told him he'd left a bottle of coke he'd shared with his girlfriend while they were drinking vodka in the park, near to where Rachel was found. Horgan had said he was worried the guards might identify him from it and come after him. Josephine McCoy, another neighbour of the Horgans, recalled seeing the then 16-year-old that evening. She'd passed him at around half eight and had asked if he knew why there were ambulances pulled up in the park. She told the court that Horgan had said Rachel Keeley was after being beaten up. Mrs McCoy admitted that she hadn't made a statement about what had occurred until the 13th of November 2000, as she didn't realise the importance of the brief interaction until then. Another neighbour, Brian Clark, and his wife were present for that conversation and he confirmed Mrs McCoy's recollection before the court. Dr John Harbison was too ill to attend court in this case. He had developed Alzheimer's. Instead, Dr Mary Cassidy took to the stand and gave her evidence, based off photographs of the scene and from the autopsy, and from the chief pathologist's report on the case. 
Mary Cassidy concluded that Rachel had been held in an arm lock which compressed her neck, leading to cardiac arrest and death. The pathologist also confirmed that Rachel had visible bruising to her jaw and multiple scratches on her body. Ian Horgan did not give evidence in his defence this time around. The jury were sent out to deliberate on the 9th of March and continued for three hours before being sent home. The jury of five women and seven men returned the following day, Friday the 10th of March, just after lunch and after around four hours of deliberation. Ian Horgan was found guilty of rape in a 10-2 majority, but not guilty of murder. He was convicted instead of manslaughter. The Keeley family opted not to give a victim impact statement. Sergeant Dennis Cahill had outlined the defendant's past to the court before sentencing. Horgan, he said, had been a promising athlete and won All-Ireland medals for running before he left school at 15. Mr Justice Barry White noted that the absence of Dr John Harbison at the trial had been to the benefit of the defendant and that Mary Cassidy's evidence based on the review of photographs had perhaps been less impactful than it might otherwise have been. The sentence was handed down and those who had listened to the trial throughout and Rachel's family were shocked to hear that Ian Horgan was given eight years for manslaughter with six of those years suspended. With the automatic 25% remission, Horgan would be set to serve only a further 18 months for Rachel's death. Mr Justice Barry White acknowledged that the sentence would be a blow for Rachel's family, but said that he needed to bear in mind that Horgan had already spent four and a half years in custody in relation to Rachel's killing. He also had to take into account Horgan's age at the time of the crime and the fact that he had no previous convictions. Horgan showed no emotion as the verdict and sentence was announced. Later, a spokesperson for Rachel's family told the press, quote, The Keeley family are, without a doubt, deeply disappointed at what we perceive as a very lenient sentence, end quote. Rachel Keeley's family weren't the only ones who were disappointed by the sentence. The public was outraged and the case became one of the talking points in the media in relation to imposing new sentencing guidelines for the judiciary. The Director of Public Prosecutions also agreed with the Keeleys and decided to bring an appeal due to the leniency of the sentence. On the 19th of April 2007, Patrick McCarthy appeared once more for the state in the matter, this time before the Court of Appeal. He told that court that Mr Horgan's crimes were on the serious end of the scale, with Horgan having ambushed a neighbour while she was out walking in a park that was considered safe in their area. Then he brutally attacked Rachel, and for that, the judge at retrial had given him only an effective two more years to serve. Mr McCarthy said that Mr Justice Barry White had erred in failing to take into account aggravating factors in his sentencing. McCarthy said that the trial judge had given too much weight to the defendant's age and had placed too much weight on the notion that he had attempted rehabilitation, given he was convicted of an offence at that time. He'd also lied under oath and his plea of guilty to manslaughter was only entered on the 26th of February 2006. He'd expressed no remorse until that date either. 
McCarthy argued that the trial judge did not have due regard to the fact that this was an assault manslaughter committed in the course of a rape. Horgan's counsel said that Dr. Cassidy's evidence indicated that the compression of the neck could have, after a relatively short period of time, resulted in death. And he argued that there was no evidence of a sustained or violent attack on Rachel Keeley. There were strong objections to the notion that Horgan had ambushed Rachel, as had been suggested by Mr. McCarthy acting for the DPP. Brendan Grehan also said that his client had made only amateurish attempts at covering up the crime, hardly the sort of thing that would truly interfere with Garda's ability to investigate the crime. Horgan had pleaded guilty to manslaughter at an early stage, he said, and had also apologised for his actions and the impact that they had had on Rachel's friends and family. Most people are familiar with the grading system for murder that exists in the United States, first, second, and third degree. Very different terms are used in the Irish courts. The crime of murder is only committed where there was the intent to kill or seriously harm, where the accused demonstrated mens rea. Everything else is classified as manslaughter, but there are different classifications and categories associated with that charge, unlike murder. Voluntary manslaughter is, in effect, a killing where the accused acted under provocation or used excessive force in self-defence, or where there is an element of diminished responsibility. Involuntary manslaughter, which is probably the most common dealt with in the Irish courts, is when the killing occurred due to an unlawful or dangerous act, or by gross negligence. The dangerousness of the action leading to the death can be judged objectively, and if any injury at all was intended and death was caused by an accused's actions, they would still then be held responsible in that case. Think, for example, those terrible cases of one-punch killings. So, when it comes to involuntary manslaughter, unlawful and dangerous are the key terms here. In Horgan's case, the following day, the three-judge panel led by Mr Justice Nicholas Kearns agreed with Mr McCarthy for the DPP. The Court of Appeals found that in this case, aggravating factors of Rachel's killing were not taken into account properly. There was also too much weight given to some mitigating factors like the plea and apology. Mr Justice Kearns said, quote, The court is of the view that there are strong public policy considerations which demand that a rape accompanied by violence which carries an appreciable risk of death must be seen as being in the most serious category and must attract a sentence at the higher range, end quote. The appeals court decided that a 12-year sentence for each charge to run concurrently was more appropriate in the case, and that Horgan would of course be credited for the time he had already served on the charges. Ian Horgan was by that stage serving his time on a special wing of the Midlands prison, and was registered as a sex offender. Rather than preparing for release later that year in 2007, his release date was at that point pushed back to sometime in 2010, at the latest. Rachel's family expressed relief at the new sentence to be imposed, adding that nothing could bring Rachel back, but they felt that the increased prison time reflected the severity of the crime more accurately. (music) 
That was not the end to Ian Horgan's court appearances in 2007, however. In November of that year, he found himself before the Cork Circuit Criminal Court, charged with robbery of a post office in September of 2005. He had been briefly out on bail at the time. He had been out on bail at the time, after the direction for his retrial for the killing of Rachel Keeley. Horgan was convicted by a jury after a week-long trial where the court heard that he had entered a post office in rural County Cork with a slash hook. The elderly couple who ran the shop, Ted and Mary Healy, had noticed a young man wearing a hoodie standing at the post office door at lunchtime on the 6th of September 2005. When they went to see what the matter was and opened the door to him, the man told them bluntly that all he wanted was the money. Horgan had then threatened the postmaster and his wife with the implement. As Horgan went to leave the premises, the couple's adult son arrived and so Horgan threatened him and then stole the son's car to make a getaway. Horgan left the three family members locked in the shop behind him. He made off with 1,500 euros which had been in the safe and rolls of lotto scratch cards. It was alleged that the day after the robbery, Horgan had gifted his girlfriend 950 euro. She'd asked him where he got the money from, and eventually he told her that it had come from a credit union savings account. The stolen car was found abandoned, and in it there was the slash hook used in the robbery and a kitchen knife. The kitchen knife was found to match the set in Ian Horgan's own home. DNA was also discovered, which linked Horgan to the items. But Ian Horgan had denied any involvement in the robbery. The jury of nine men and three women found him guilty of both charges, and Judge Cornelius Murphy handed down an eight-year sentence for what he described as a very serious offence which warranted a lengthy sentence. The judge went on to say, quote, A village post office and shop is a social linchpin of rural and village life considerable damage has been done to people's confidence, end quote. The court found that Horgan had taken advantage of an older, vulnerable couple who were effectively defenceless against him. He was also handed down a concurrent three-year sentence for the theft of the car and was banned from driving for 10 years. The eight-year sentence would begin on the 9th of September 2010, as soon as Horgan had served out his minimum term in relation to his convictions for Rachel's killing. When asked, for com- when asked for comment on the new conviction and sentence, the Keeley family had little to add. Rachel's brother-in-law, David Dunlee, said that the additional time that Horgan was set to serve meant very little to them. No amount of time served by Horgan could make up for the loss of Rachel. Ian Horgan then appealed the conviction for that robbery. In July of 2009, Ian Horgan won that appeal. It was found by the Court of Criminal Appeal that the Gardaí did not have a properly validated warrant to search Horgan's home at the time of the robbery, and that on this basis, the conviction was unsafe. A retrial was directed. In June of 2010, Horgan pleaded guilty to a charge of robbery and one of theft of a car relating to the incident at the Healy shop. He was sentenced to four years for the crime by Judge Patrick Moran. The DPP once again appealed, saying that the sentence was too lenient, but this time the state was unsuccessful in their arguments. In March of 2013, news broke that Horgan had been involved in a violent incident while being held in Wheatfield Prison in Dublin. He had beaten up 
Jer Dundon of the notorious McCarthy Dundon gang, and he'd beaten him to a pulp. A source in the prison told Ken Foy, writing for the Evening Herald, that Horgan had attacked Jer Dundon in retaliation for threats that had been made against Horgan's friend by Dundon. The source described Horgan as a quote-unquote headcase and said that his transfer out of Wheatfield was for the best, as he'd made himself a target. Ironically, only a few months later, Horgan was released from prison and moved in with his girlfriend, who lived just around the corner from Jer Dundon's home in Limerick City. Horgan moved in with the woman whose brother had been convicted of a vicious gang rape a number of years before. The brother was reported at the time as being the boyfriend of Jer Dundon's ex-girlfriend. It seems they all ran in the same social circles. A short time later, on the 13th of December 2013, Horgan was arrested again, this time in relation to a shooting that had occurred in Prospect, Limerick City. A man had been targeted as he stood outside his home at half past nine the evening before, and he'd suffered a number of pellet wounds to his chest from a shotgun. A trial took place in January of 2015 in relation to that incident, where Horgan pleaded not guilty to the charge of possession of a shotgun with intent to endanger. Horgan told the court that the gunshot residue that had been discovered on his hands after his arrest had been due to shooting at trees with a friend a few days earlier. The jury of six men and six women found him not guilty on that charge. However, Horgan was still behind bars. In November of 2013, a shop in Johnsgate, Limerick City, had been robbed. A man had entered the premises wearing white latex gloves with a hood over his head and a scarf around his face. The shop manager tackled the intruder to the ground and there was a struggle. The man got away with only 60 euro, but he'd left behind his scarf. The scarf had DNA on it, and when it was examined, it was found to match Ian Horgan. When Gardy picked him up in relation to the robbery, Horgan made admissions to the crime. He faced trial in 2015 and was handed down a five-year sentence with one year suspended for that robbery. By December 2016, it was expected that Ian Horgan was to be released once more from jail. His girlfriend posted on Facebook that they were both excited at the prospect that he'd be home for the holiday. But by March of 2017, Horgan's family home in McCroom, County Cork, had been searched and an amount of heroin was discovered. The guardie had gotten a tip that there were drugs in the house and they were uncovered by a guarded dog unit in a bedside table. Six months later, an off-licence liquor store in Mallow, County Cork, was robbed at knife point. 1,395 euros was taken. Thankfully, the woman who was working in the shop at the time was unhurt, but she was traumatised. Within four weeks of that robbery, media outlets reported that Ian Horgan had gone on the run. According to Extra.ie, Horgan had left his home in Limerick and travelled to Dublin, where he had stayed overnight in a hotel before leaving for the UK. Extra reported that Gardy had launched a manhunt. Not only was Horgan wanted and known to be a violent criminal, he was also on the sex offenders register, which required him to notify the Gardy of his home address. By skipping town, he was also in breach of those rules. In June of 2018, Horgan appeared in court again and admitted that the drugs in the family home had been his. 
he had transported the €3,000 worth of opiates and intended to repack most of the drugs for sale. Some of it was for his own use. He was sentenced to two years and three months, with six months suspended. Then, in December of 2018, he was before the courts in relation to the off-license robbery the previous year. Again, Horgan pleaded guilty. The judge imposed a six-year sentence, with two suspended. Ian Horgan will be due for release again in 2022. Papers reported that Ian Horgan and his lawyers had informed the court that he had become addicted to heroin in recent years while he was in prison, and that this struggle with addiction was responsible for much of the trouble he had been in since his release for Rachel's killing. The court was informed that he planned to seek treatment. Meanwhile, the Keeley family continue to live with the grief of their loss of Rachel, but say that what becomes of Ian Horgan in the future is not their concern. In March of 2016, John Keeley, Rachel's father, told the press, quote, There's no bitterness in my heart towards Horgan. There's no point in being bitter and hating him. It won't bring Rachel back. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating, or honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Fiona Cullen, Karen Guy Hofstrand Isom, Clinton Luciana Vamp White, Dave Corrigan, Ondine Bonner, Alice, Olivia McGrail, Faye Wicks, Brenda Gallo, and Robert McGuire. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It's hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going and along with all of the warm fuzzies you get by helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes and nifty merch. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. Get all the info you need about your own fertility hormones at Modern Fertility. Don't forget to check out BetterHelp to keep up with your self-care and make sure to download Best Fiends, my favourite mobile puzzle game. Supporting our sponsors supports this show, so head to the show notes and check out these awesome products and services. Our theme music is Quinn's Song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast is researched, written and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. The Director of Public Prosecutions the director of public prose- the director of public prose- Hi Men's Rail listeners. Are you a fan of true crime? If you're listening to this podcast, then you most certainly are. During these strange times, are you looking for a new true crime podcast? How about a podcast that focuses on international unsolved true crime cases? If that sounds good to you, then you have found your new true crime obsession. 
My podcast, Riddle Me That True Crime, is brand new. I've been releasing one episode a day so that new listeners will have bingeable content. In the future, I will be focusing on bi-weekly cases. I cover both well-known and more obscure cases, such as the murder of Candace Hiltz, the cyanide coffee murder of Myrna Salaheen, and the disappearance of Sri Lanka's richest man, Upali Wijewardene. Riddle Me That True Crime is available on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you. Now back to Sinead.